This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Again, uh, good morning. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm pastor here, and normally uh, Kyle Colbertson would also be up here helping me, uh, but his son was born yesterday. Uh, we're going to show his picture again. Bennett Gabriel Colbertson. Uh, yes, very, very exciting, especially uh, in this time where we're reviewing the Christmas story and a baby coming in a manger uh, to, to have this little baby boy up here, uh, just so squishy. Um, so we uh, can't wait to meet him face to face, but are very thankful that mom and baby are doing well and uh, in recovery. Uh, last week, we talked about what we were made for, what we were really, truly made for. And this week, we're going to talk about what we long for what our hearts truly desire. And they're close, and they seem to overlap in many ways. But if I can try to distinguish them a little bit, last week we talked about what Christianity wants us to do, worship God. But this week we're going to talk about what Christianity wants us to love, namely Jesus Christ. And how the Bible talks about our love for Jesus Christ is really talking about being thirsty. Can you remember the last time that you were really thirsty? Now, I know our culture uses thirsty figuratively in various ways, but I'm talking about real actual thirst here. Um, They use it figuratively in various ways, just like the Bible does, because thirst is a very powerful feeling that dominates almost our entire lives. Uh, A friend of my wife and I's, um, and some of you know her as well, Cecilia Heiser, was on island for Hurricanes Irma and Maria. And I'll never forget the story that she shared, because she was able to get an emergency flight off the island about seven to ten days uh, after the storms, because she was pregnant. And so she talked about walking into San Juan Airport. Not only, for, I can't remember if it was seven or ten days after the storms, not only had they been kind of, in some sense, rationing water, right? They're not drinking as much as they would have normally. They're not um, in their uh, climate-controlled environments, right? And the, the nobody had power. Well, she walks into SJU, and there's no power there either. And she said the glass was steamy with the sweat, like sauna-like sweat. She said it smelled like a middle school and high school boys' locker room. She said it was nasty, and she was there for hours before they were able to board the plane. But then they sat on the plane for another six hours waiting for other um, uh, passengers that needed to board with emergencies, uh, and so the plane could be full with people that needed to get off of the island. And so as they were waiting there for six hours, the flight attendants had nothing to do but try to care for these people, and everyone was unbelievably thirsty. So much so that the flight attendants had to start like rationing water and serve it in little cups and not like give people whole bottles because they didn't have enough on the plane and people just kept asking for more and more and more water. Thirst dominates. Now, her husband Jeff said that during Maria, one of the one places you could count on there being water bottles was Costco. And so he said the first time that he went, he waited four hours in line outside of Costco to buy water. So necessary for our lives, thirst controls, and it controls in a way even more powerful than hunger, although in the Bible they're often used side by side, you hunger and you thirst, you know? Um, But hunger, a lot of us, especially with intermittent fasting being kind of a fad right now, um, a lot of us have have, have been hungry, and we experience hungry, maybe even get hangry, but we understand that we can go longer without food than water. Thirst redirects our entire life in a particular way. Now, how many of you want to run back to the water dispenser right now? Because I'm actually feeling kind of thirsty, too. You talk about thirst, and we're going to be talking about thirst for a lot today. So brace yourselves. The Bible says that all of humanity, including you, thirst. 
You long for something that truly needs to be quenched, truly satisfied. And as long as you are deprived of that thing, all of your thoughts are bent on it. And today, Jesus proclaims to us from his word that he quenches that thirst. And he describes two ways that he's going to do it. Before we get there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This comes from Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. Revelation 22, 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. This passage that we just read comes from, in my Bible, right before the table of weights and measures. (laughs) The very last page of the Bible, the last chapter, the last verses. And here, Jesus is reiterating something that you see time and time again throughout the Bible. He has what it takes to quench your deepest longings. Now, in this passage, he quotes a lot and references and alludes to a lot of different Bible passages, but we're going to focus on two of the major ones, and they come from Isaiah 11 and Numbers 24, and they're going to kind of guide our two points today. How does Jesus satisfy our deepest longings? Jesus fulfills our expectations and supersedes our expectations. Jesus fulfills and supersedes. So first he fulfills. I mentioned that the Bible speaks figuratively about hunger and thirst, um, even as Jesus is doing right here at the end of the story, right? But maybe one of the most famous passages that people know about hunger and thirst in the Bible is this one that comes from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is one of Jesus's sermons. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now there's something very important about this passage. When you're hungry and you're thirsty, like just imagine thirst, right? We'll focus on that one. When you're really thirsty, and maybe you remember this as a kid, my parents did it too, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I've even done it to Joaquin already, which is like swallow your spit. It doesn't work, right? You can't satisfy your own thirst. You need something from outside of yourself. You hunger and thirst for something that you can't actually produce. You have to um, ingest something else, right? Jesus' analogy here, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... They're hungering and thirsting, uh, not for righteousness that they can produce, but something else that they can latch onto. They're longing for a kingdom that will make things right. They're longing for a king that will make things right, a king that will rule with justice. And we long for the same thing. And it seems almost achievable. Like if we could just get the right person in office or have the right cultural moment, then finally this problem would be solved and things would be so much better. And we all kind of have our things, you know, our our hobby horses that we talk about. Um, And God made us uh, to be passionate about a bunch of these different things. And there's some that are more pressing in our cultural moment, like abortion, racial discrimination and oppression, lobbying in Wall Street, the elite versus commoners, politicians versus the populace. All of these things seem like they could be solved if we could just get the right person, right? But I don't want to keep it too far abstracted from our own lives, even though we care passionately about them. I actually want to bring it down. We also want righteousness in our own lives. We long to see a king fix our parenting, 
We don't want simply behavioral modification and not ambiguous altruisms. We want a king who actually sees our heart, a king who actually sees our child's heart and helps resolve the tension of the parenting problem that we're having. We want a king who can help arbitrate between decades-long family estrangements that can allow wounded parties to be heard and give a space where offenders might actually be brought to repentance by discipline or by punishment. We want a king who can make things happen, who knows what happens in the dark and isolation of our own lives, who knows our inner thoughts and is more than just a therapist or more than just a friend, but an actual authority in our lives who can fix it. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Jesus claims to be this king in our passage today, and the way that he does it is his first um, allusion to an Old Testament passage. And this happens in verse 16 um, in our passage, if you'll look there. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. When Jesus says that I am the root and the descendant of David, he's saying that I am that king, that king who will make all things right. And if you have a, a Bible with cross-references, um, the, the, which is sometimes like in the footnotes or in the side, and it shows you kind of other verses that attach to it. And what we mean by these cross-references is that as we study the book of Revelation, uh, John, the author of the book of Revelation, seems to reference certain ideas over and over and over again. And because he references them over and over and over again, we get a good idea of what sort of passages he's talking about from the Old Testament. And so uh, this allusion to Isaiah 11, if you have the cross-references in your Bible, it'll say that this um, root of David is referencing Isaiah 11. And there's a prophecy in Isaiah 11, and here's what it says. I'm going to read it for you. This comes from Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I hope you hear all of the plant-like imagery that we see again here in Revelation 22. A shoot, stump, root, fruit. Okay, so what about this shoot from the stump? What's the story here? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What Jesus is quoting here is saying, that prophecy in Isaiah, 600 years later, that's me. Now imagine being in Israel. We just finished a sermon series over First and Second Samuel, and we read about King David. And King David was the closest that Israel ever got to a righteous king, the closest they ever got. But David was seriously broken. If you remember how the story ends, he sinned horrifically, and the fallout with his children was devastating. Now, imagine being an Israelite in that time, that you had tasted the kingdom of righteousness, right? Social things were being fixed. You had a, um, a, a king of the people who would actually hear cases before him and settle disputes that were actually making the kingdom of righteousness, an accessible king. And then he so spectacularly falls from grace. Just a few years later, there would be a civil war in Israel. 400 years later would be Isaiah, Isaiah at this point is facing um, an army from the outside of Israel that is about to take away 10 of the 12 tribes forever. Whatever promises Isaiah is making here 
probably fall on some pretty hard hearts. That tree is dead. It's been dead for 400 years, and it seems like it's been dead for 600 years after that until Jesus shows up and says, I am he. I am this king. Now, the thing is, is it falls on hard hearts, maybe cynical or despairing hearts. I'm sure some of them were cynical at the promise. They, hear, they heard Isaiah's words, and they said, sure, God's going to bring righteousness as we're getting conquered. As we haven't had a king from that line that's been any good for hundreds of years, God's going to bring it now. I'm sure in their thirst for righteousness, they chose cynicism because they couldn't ever actually taste any of it. And so they found other ways to quench their thirst. They worshiped other gods. They said, righteousness will never truly come, so I'll just play the the ball as it lies. I'll just play like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and our enemies around. They seem to get what they want. Some of us are cynical about righteousness ever coming. So we harden our consciences against the sins that we participate in. Because how are we supposed to survive if we don't play like the other guys? We're unwilling to really believe that the root of Jesse has borne fruit. Some of us despair. In Isaiah's day, the people that despaired probably looked back on the good old days of King David, and they said, if we could just get back to the good old days, it's going to be better. But if they really thought about David, David wasn't that great anyway, and I think some of us do the same thing. We look back to some good old day that's supposed to be better instead of looking forward to the king who actually bring righteousness. He is what we need. And this is just it. Jesus here at the end of the story reiterates that he can actually quench your thirst for righteousness, and he invites you to come in verse 17, to run to him with your questions about parenting, to run to him with your wounds from your family, not to numb your yearning for actual righteousness, but to run to the one who can actually give it to you. The root of Jesse has come. Go to him and drink the righteousness that is there. And isn't that what we see Jesus do in Scripture? He's fulfilling our expectations. The prophecies of the Old Testament. He's coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He's winning the hearts of the people, an actual descendant of David who brings righteous healing where there was only death and who rules with righteousness and justice. Jesus really is the king of righteousness and really can fulfill our deepest longings for righteousness, our expectations that it will come. He's going to bring it. But there's something that stands out about Jesus' kingdom, and that leads us into our second point, because Jesus doesn't fulfill our expectations only. He supersedes them. And here's what I mean. It didn't really seem like Jesus was fulfilling his expectations in the Bible. And in fact, if you were one of his disciples, you would say he's not fulfilling anything. If you were to read the verses of Isaiah 11, I bet you, you would believe, just like the Jews in Jesus' day, that this king was supposed to come with an army. Jesus came with no army came with zero recognition. The only recognition he got was a sign that said King of the Jews on his cross in three different languages. Jesus will fulfill our expectations for righteousness, but he's also going to supersede our expectations of what life really is. Because think about this, even if we got our wish and we got a king here and now that could actually solve all the social injustices and actually would hear cases and coach us through how to parent our children or through family wounds and would actually be able to make all things right, we would still die. You know? Death is one of those things that we make peace with because we can't understand it. 
And we can't understand it because we were never meant to understand it. Adam and Eve were not supposed to die, and neither are we, and neither are your friends, or neither your parents, or your grandparents, or your children. We thirst for something more than this world has to offer because it seems that all this world has to offer us ends in death. And actually, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes acknowledges this. (laughs) You toil your whole life to gather up all this stuff, and then you die and you leave it to someone else. Death is the great equalizer. The things you can't escape in this life, death and taxes. We long for something more than this world has to offer. Now, have you guys ever heard of the show Limitless with Chris Hemsworth on Netflix? Um, you know, he's Thor, right? So he's like a Greek god embodied. Um, but he's trying to learn and teach us tactics and techniques on how to live longer. And ultimately, the show's not really that great, but it did kind of suck me in in a peculiar way. But at one of the final episodes, he actually gets awful news. He has a genetic predisposition uh, that makes him much more likely, like 10 times as likely as the average populace, uh, to to, um, develop Alzheimer's. And you can see it, how this show has developed this time about how he just wants to spend as much time as he possibly can with his children. He's trying to invest money and learn what he can to reduce, um, reduce and manage stress, to be able to train his bodies in ways that will give him just a few extra years. I don't think Chris has any delusions on immortality, and I think most rational people don't. Although I do think we subtly believe that advances in modern science and our high levels of income will stretch our lives to some extent, and to some extent it might, marginally. But death comes for us all, and we long for something more than this world has to offer. Jesus says that he's coming to change the world order in Revelation 22, that it's going to be the dawning of a new age, that we will no longer be bound by what this world has to offer, but that he will bring life and bring it abundantly. And he says this in verse 16, at the end of that quote, right after what we just read, he says, I am the bright and morning star. Now, this is kind of a weird phrase. You might think, like, what on earth is Jesus talking about? The bright morning star. It's maybe, like, kind of, I mean, for anybody else, we would say it's a little arrogant, but we know that he's Jesus, and so, like, it's probably fine that he says it. But he's actually referencing a prophecy from Numbers 24. I'm going to read it for you here. So, Numbers 24, this is, this is the prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, again, to understand the prophecy, we've got to know a little bit about the context of what was happening in Numbers 24, so hang with me. Numbers 24 is right after Israel had left Egypt, and I'm, you guys know this story. Uh, Moses came up to Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go, and naughty Pharaoh said, no, 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 and then the plagues came, and they had to go through the Red Sea, right? Well, they were slaves there. They had no possessions, so they go through the Red Sea, and they end up in the wilderness. They still don't have a place to go, so they're wandering through another king's land, and this king is named Balak. And he didn't like them wandering through his land, and he's kind of intimidated by them. And so Balak, and maybe if you really know your Bible stories a little, you might remember this story, he hires a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. And on the way to curse Israel, Balaam is actually uh, spoken to by a talking donkey, kind of like Shrek. And this uh, donkey speaks to him to basically prevent him from being attacked by an angel of the Lord. Saves his life. I know, it's a crazy story, and I really want to talk about it, but I really can't. I've got to get back to Revelation 22 eventually. So I'm going to summarize it this way. Israel, in this story, had no idea that they were under threat. 
Balak the king had been spying on them from a distance. He hired a prophet to give them a supernatural curse. And once the curse was applied, we are led to believe Balak would have taken his army to crush Israel. Israel was blind to all this, had no idea what was going on, and God acts on their behalf. Sends an angel, sends a messenger. Not only does he not curse his people, but he actually, the messenger, changes the curse to curse Balak, to curse his enemies. He delivers his people. And despite Israel being completely unaware of this threat from the outside, the Lord delivered them. We know that death is an enemy crouching at our doorstep. We know that we have been accused by the devil, and we know that in some real sense, we deserve to be supernaturally cursed by death, held by death forever, to be bound by death itself. But look at verse 16. Jesus sent an angel, spoke through a messenger, that something that we've been yearning for has been delivered. Escape from an enemy that we didn't even think possible. God acts to deliver us and to deliver us into something more than this world has to offer. See, Jesus' disciples wanted a king that would bring them a kingdom of that would bring them a kingdom of peace, that would rule with righteousness, and Jesus does fulfill that, but he also supersedes it because Jesus came to give them more than this world has to offer. Jesus came to give them and us everlasting life. Of course, we long for a kingdom of righteousness, every human does, but Christians are marked by their silly and almost childlike longing for deliverance from an enemy that seems impossible. Christians believe in the resurrection. We hope in the resurrection. We yearn for the resurrection. We yearn for more than what we see in this life. And if you claim to be a Christian, but don't want to thirst for something more than this world has to offer, I'd invite you to hear these words of Paul. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christians are honest about their thirst for resurrection because if we weren't honest about it, we know what we would try to do. We would try to quench our thirst with anything else that might satisfy for a little while. And certain things seem to satisfy for a little while, right? Everyone knows that this life is short, so some try to make all the money they can. They try to take all the vacations to have all the experiences, to find peace with themselves in the universe and send out good vibes, to find contentment into the hand that we've been dealt. They stuff themselves full of themselves, trying to make meaning, because what they really thirst for is something more than this world has to offer. Everybody is looking forward at death and just going, I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to enjoy what I have here. And Jesus says, I am the dawning of a new age, a new bright morning star, the dawning of a new era. He says, I'm bringing a new world order, more than this world has to offer. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you guys remember the story of Adam and Eve? They walked with God in the cool of the garden, but when they sinned, he put them out of the garden. He put an angel there to guard it, lest his holiness consume them. And in some sense, there's a separation here of something that should have always been united, the physical with Adam and Eve and the spiritual with God. It had once been united, now is separated. We might say that in that moment, a thirst was created, a longing for reunion with God himself, the separation of these two dimensions, spiritual and physical, that ought to have been united. And Jesus is the one saying, I'm the one who's doing it. I am heaven come down to rescue the physical back into reunification for what you really long for. And what you long for is everlasting life. To know that death is not the last word, that I will rescue you 
even from there. You see, Jesus not only fulfills our expectations of some sort of righteous kingdom, but he also ushers in an unthinkable kingdom, one where death does not have the last word. Well, we are liberated even from death. Now, do we experience the fullness of either of these realities yet? No. But there's an invitation to come and drink and be satisfied from the one who can actually satisfy us of our deepest longings. And you know, we actually see what this looks like uh, in the Bible. We actually see Jesus satisfying someone uh, for their deepest longings. And I don't know if you guys remember the story of the Samaritan woman. Uh, she was a woman of Samaria. The Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along. And she thirsted for something that she couldn't quite satisfy. First, she longed for righteousness, and she found it in Jesus. And here's how it happened. On the one hand, because she was a Samaritan, she was treated as a second-class citizen by the Jews. But on the other hand, she kept imploding relationship after relationship after relationship, and she didn't really understand why her heart kept getting broken all of these times. We find out that she has had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And she longed for a king who would see her brokenness and the brokenness of others against her and actually give her a prescription for living a righteous life. Jesus breaks through her cynicism. If you go and read the story, it's in John 4. She, she kind of responds cynically. She's like, really, are you, are, you, are you saying you're better than Jacob? Jesus breaks through her cynicism and announces that his kingdom is here. And in his kingdom, she can seek counsel about her relationships with men. She can find right answers. She can be seen for who she is, despite all of her brokenness in history, and be loved by the king who is able to make it right. But she also longed for something more than this world had to offer. And as the conversation develops between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, it becomes clear that she's longing for a place where she might worship in spirit and truth. A place of worship that wasn't contested between Jews and Samaritans. A dawning of a new era where spiritual and physical would be recollided again. And so she asked Jesus the unthinkable question, are you this one, the one who will reunite heaven and earth and who will teach us to worship in spirit and truth? And Jesus says, I am he. Our passage concludes that this one who fulfills and supersedes our deepest longings is this otherworldly king, and he has come, and he has come for you. Look at verse 17. The spirit and his bride, who is the church uh, throughout Revelation, so if you're reading Revelation and you hear about the bride, says, come. And the one who hears says, come. So let the one who is thirsty come and take of the waters of life without price. He came for the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, come. And when she left, do you know what the story says? If you read through John 4, it says that she abandoned her water jar. <laughs> she came to um, the, the well to collect water. She was thirsty for something, and she left her water jar there because she left satisfied. She found the living waters of eternal life, and she was no longer thirsty. She came to the well thirsty and left quenched because an otherworldly king had come and come for her. But it doesn't stop there. It says that the voice, she then became the voice of the one who heard. If you were to read um, our, our passage again, verse 17, look down there. The spirit and the bride, which is the church, says come, and the one who hears says come. The one who hears says come. And so she is the one who hears, and she becomes the voice of the one who heard. And she went to her town, and if you were to look up the story, the first word to leave her mouth when she comes into the town is come. See this man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be? the Christ. Come, taste, and see. And it says that the people went, and they took for free of these living waters. 
And Jesus really fulfilled and superseded what they were always looking for. And Jesus really fulfills and supersedes all that you've been looking for. And he's calling to you here in the last words of his Bible. The last words he wants you to read is, I came for you. Will you come and drink the waters of everlasting life? His spirit and the bride, the church has said, come. To those of you in this room who have went to the well and found your thirst quenched, he says, come. And you announce, come. He's made me right and he's made the dawning of a new era in my life where I live not under the fear of the valley of the shadow of evil, but I know that I can rest in him because he leads me to still waters and green pastures. And finally, he turns to you, those of you who aren't sure about what he claims. And he says, come. Drink fully and deeply of the living waters of eternal life without price. If what we're to do in the Christian life is to worship, we worship because we love the one who gave us waters of eternal life, quenched our deepest longings in this world, really and truly. Can we run to him together? Jesus declared uh, to the woman at the well that he fulfilled and superseded her deepest longings. And he invited her to come uh, and drink of this water that he had uh, that that meant that she would never be thirsty again. And in a similar way, a a few uh, weeks later, uh, he'd be with his disciples um, and he'd be saying, I'm going to leave you for a little while. But I want you to know that these promises to you are real. And I want you not just to hear it proclaimed, but I want you to be able to taste it on your lips. And I want you to eat and be satisfied and drink and have your thirst quenched. And he gave them this meal. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. He turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This meal is instituted by Jesus himself, and it is one way that we come to taste and see that he is good, that he really does fulfill and supersede our deepest longings. If you come and taste and see and go to his word and meet him, you will find that he will not fail to meet those deepest longings. Now this meal is for Christians who have been baptized into Jesus' church and are members in good standing of a church. Um, if this doesn't describe who you are, uh, we'd, we're so glad that you're here, but we'd ask you to not partake of this meal. Uh, not because uh, we don't think you're worthy, uh, but because Jesus wants the inside of your life and the outside of your life to match. And so he would like you to become part of a church and be baptized. And if you're interested in learning more about that, please come talk to me. I would love to tell you more about that. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle and go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. If you require gluten-free, you're going to want to go to my left over here and notify your server of that. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Spirit, we ask that you would, through these common elements, fulfill and supersede our deepest longings. That you would allow Christ's word to be sufficient for us until he comes again. And allow this meal to nourish us along our journey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.